Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hi, 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 and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we've reached the letters H and I. My name. Is that why you did hi, hi, hi? So there's some sort of rhyming couplet to that entrance. Why, why else would I not be doing that? Um, my name is Tom Butler and joining me as we hack our way through the history books is a man you could describe as happy and healthy. It's the heavenly Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hilarious. And alongside him is the heinous, hairless, hard man, Mr. Tom Wheatley. <laughs> You've really enjoyed yourself with this one. That's a good Normally, <laughs> yeah, you're really going for it. On this episode, yeah, where's the eyes? On this episode, oh, I haven't got any eyes. Um, on this episode, we've got a hat full of Bond creators to get through, including two directors responsible for some of the best Bond films and also some of the worst ones, a handful of writers, a composer, and a stunt driver. And we'll also be looking at some of the characters under the letters H and I. So let's kick off with a director with four Bond films to his name. Yes, yeah, so we are going for H is for Hamilton. Guy Hamilton, a director that needs very little introduction, especially considering we've done so many podcasts now that we've probably mentioned his name on dozens of occasions. Guy Hamilton, as you've already said, he's directed four of the Bond films, four very, well, some good Bond films, not some not so good Steady Bond there, films. you nearly um, committed to, to something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was just trying to remember which ones he'd done. Um uh, over the course of his career, he directed 22 films from the 1950s all the way up to the 1980s. Um, but a little bit about his uh, early life, not too much because we want to talk about the Bond stuff. But he, like many of the early entries into the Bond alumni, he was around during the war. He actually entered the film film industry in 1938 when he was 16 as a clapper boy, uh, Victorian studios in Nice, which is in France. But then, of course, the Second World War hit and he escaped from France to uh, French North Africa. He was one of 500 refugees to board a boat to the French North Africa, along with playwright and novelist W. Somerset Mowham. He also he worked in the film library at Paramount News uh, before he was commissioned into the Royal Navy. Uh, he served in the 15th Motor Torpedo Boat 718 Flotilla, which was um, a unit that uh, moved agents uh, into France and brought uh, downed uh, British pilots back to England. 
He was also awarded Distinguished Services Cross, uh, Service Cross for, um, he was actually left behind for a month in occupied Brittany. So he, he was commended for that. Uh, after the war, he uh, his career saw him obviously move into the world of film. Um, he got a job on a second unit on a director called Trevor Hyde uh, as work. So one of his films. Uh, then he was put uh, working for Alex Corder, a name that we've mentioned a few times throughout this podcast. Uh, and he did that as a third assistant director, eventually working his way up to a first assistant director. He said of the position... The trick was not to be an assistant director, but to become the director's assistant. And that's something that he sort of, an idea that follows him quite a lot throughout his early part of his career, because he, he, a lot of his skills and and what he learned come from the directors that he worked with. Um, He said at the time, I found that working with bad directors was infinitely more useful because you watch them get into trouble three times a day and puddle around and you say, you know, I won't do that. I don't want to fall into that trap. And over that period, he became recognised as as one of the best in the business. He worked for loads of big people. He worked for Alberto Cavalcanti, uh, Sidney uh, Gillier, John Huston, Anthony Kimmons uh, and Carol Reed. Carol Reed is this person that has quite a big part to play in his story because he was a man that he really did have a lot of respect for and puts a lot of his sort of skills in directing down to. Um, he worked on a number of films with, with Carol Reed, including a film called The Fallen Idol. I will, I will say one thing about uh, Guy Hamilton at this point. He's one of these directors who, in historical recollection in articles and things like that he's very highly regarded but he's not one of those old directors that's really stood the test of time for the common man so even though he's worked on a lot of big films very few of those films have really stood the test of time and 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 made their way to be sort of you know you look back and you've got you've got directors that like Hitchcock and Howard Hawks and people like that and their films are still remembered and even younger people can can say those people Guy Hamilton's only really remembered for for bond um unless you're knowledgeable within you know the history of films and you know a lot about old films um but carol reed was had a lot of impact on his work he said i was devoted to carol he made my life easy because i followed him around like a little dog while learning my trade if you'd ask him a question he'd always answer it carol reed was the biggest influence on me and on everything that i did High praise for Carol Reed there. And it was Carol Reed that suggested to Hamilton that if he wanted to um, become a director, he needed to refuse to re-sign with Corder at the time unless he gave Hamilton the opportunity to direct films. And it worked. And Hamilton eventually took on the job of directing a film called The Ringer. He then moved on to directing a film called The Intruder. I don't know any of these films, but I do know the third film that he directed, which was an adaptation of Inspector Calls, which I imagine both of you have seen. Which one's that? The 1954 not black and white inspector calls okay you must have seen it yeah. absolutely fantastic film yeah yeah um so that's one of the few few that i do know and then uh his fourth film was the cold it story which he also co-wrote also did a, a musical with max bygrade called charlie moon hamilton had his a big experience with uh, his first experience with larger budget films when he uh, replaced alexander mckendrick on the set of set of the devil's disciple because um he was uh, the previous director was sacked that was a big film which starred kirk douglas and burt lancaster had a lot of budget so he started to learn the ropes when it came to high budget films he worked on a war film from dino de Laurentiis um called the best of enemies and it that it was that film that sort of showed people hamilton's ability to work with uh, intricate set pieces and action sequences which is of course 
something that probably plays a big part in why he was picked to do Bond films. In 1962, after that film, he was he actually got offered the role uh, the directing Doctor No, and he turned it down at the time, um, as many people did. You imagine at the time, it was not really a, sh- a done deal. So when they were going out to speak to directors about the possibility of directing it, they didn't have a massive budget at the time. It wasn't like you kept the, they were going to these people and saying, do you want to direct a Bond film? Because most of them will probably say yes. But at that point, it was news, so he didn't. he turned it down. So the first film he actually directed for Bond was Goldfinger. Um, And he's been quite highly revered for managing to merge the different elements of Bond up until that that point. So that sort of action adventure, the the darker humour around it and comedy and the sort of sexual elements of it. He tied them all together into a very neat, well-directed film that, that wasn't stuck in one part of those so it was a very nice rounded film um and i think we can all agree from watching goldfinger recently that he did a very good job with that film um and he also and i mentioned this when we when we did the goldfinger episode he was also very focused on the direction of how to direct and and write a villain he said i like the idea of an intellectual villain a bond villain has to be intellectually equal and a worthy opponent of bond because he always has a certain scheme in mind and is able to talk about it intelligently he can't be a thug for all the thuggery he has other people to deal with thunderball um he actually uh he he was asked to come back to that but at the time he, he in an interview he he talks about how he he didn't come back to it just for the reason that he just didn't want to do it he what he didn't feel he was ready he says that after one bond, you should always walk away from it. Charge your batteries and then come back if you have something to say. I felt I didn't have that. And to do Bond justice, you have to arrive with a huge amount of enthusiasm, which I think is a very nice way of looking at Bond. Um, and it's definitely to his credit that he didn't do that. I also imagine there's probably some issues as well around directing because of the whole Thunderball legal battles and production and all that sort of stuff. So there might have been another element of, of it as well. So during that period... He uh, directed two films with Harry Saltzman, A Funeral in Berlin, and uh, which, of course, starred Michael Caine, and The um, Battle of Britain as well. Massive film, um, and still is. I, I, I remember Battle of Britain is one of those films that was always on at Christmas Day that uh, your dad would watch at lunchtime and you didn't really want to see. So then he came back for Diamonds Are Forever, uh, and he did Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. On Diamonds Are Forever, he talked about having a big budget on it and the amazing set pieces and everything, and he said, one directs with an insane sense of power. When he came back for Live and Let Die afterwards, it was the first Bond with a new actor that he'd uh, directed, so he hadn't, he hadn't directed George in On Imagine Secret Service. And one of the big things there was that, or one of the, the major hurdles was obviously getting being able to direct roger in a way that he was confident confidently playing bond after sean so he said to roger whatever you do don't try to play sean connery you've got you've got to create your own bond and i will try and help you because i know the things you're good at and the things you're not so good at and he he talks about roger and says that at a point in the film he started to relax in, in in the role um and he was no longer cautious about how he was acting and worrying that he wasn't appearing you know he wasn't trying to be like sean so he began to like feel that he was in he was in the Bond skin, so to speak. So halfway through the picture, he was much relaxed in the first part of the picture, and he says that um, he doesn't regret returning for the Live and Let Die, 
But he does regret coming back for The Man with the Golden Gun, which in many interviews that I've read, it, he classes The Man with the Golden Gun as the only film he's ever regretted directing. And the, 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 I couldn't actually find many clear reasons why that was. I presume just because it didn't, the, the film didn't really get a good response from the critics as, as, as many of the other films did. But also it was getting a bit ridiculous by that point. You can kind of see that up until Live and Let Die, Live and Let Die is quite ridiculous as well, but it was really spiraling by that point. And it was during his tenure that the film started to spiral out of control. Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. Obviously, it got worse to a point when it came to like uh, Moonraker. But yeah, he regretted making Man with the Golden Gun. It wasn't the last time he worked on a Bond film because he was working in pre-production for The Spy Who Loved Me. But he never actually directed that film in the end because of various reasons. I think it's in Cubby Broccoli's book. He talks about it, but he says that the reason that he left was because of the arguments that were going on between Harry and Cubby at the time, largely around the financial issues that were going on between the two during that point. And he just... He just didn't want to get involved in it. He said he can't direct under those sorts of um, those sorts of problems. So um, he actually went off to direct Superman, which sounds like a good deal. Um, but there was also further issues during the directing of Superman because he was um, a tax exile at the time and he was only allowed to be in England for 30, 30 days of the year. And when production was moved to Pinewood Studios for Sp- uh, Superman, not Spider-Man. He couldn't do it anymore, so he could no longer direct. So the job, the director job, then went to Richard Donner. But Hamilton insisted that he be paid in full for the for, for for the role, which apparently he did. Later on, he was also asked to direct for Your Eyes Only, but declined because they couldn't pay him as much as um, he wanted at the time. And as we know, for Your Eyes Only was a lower budget Bond film. Um, so, yeah, that was the last time that he ever took part um, in a Bond film. After then, his films didn't do quite so well he had a few poorly received ones uh force 10 from navarone in 1978 uh, and a adaptation of agatha christie's um the mirror cracked in 1980 which weren't well received apparently in the late 1980s he was um, approached to direct batman but had declined that which would have been an interesting film to watch definitely a different wow. direction from what we yeah. got can you imagine that <laughs> That'd be crazy. Yeah. Uh, in a 2003 interview, uh, he said that the contemporary Bond films, uh, he talks a little bit about stunts in, in some interviews. He, he's quite a, an interesting character to read. Uh, there's a few interviews where he's very open. He chats about it a lot. And then a lot of interviews, he just gives one word answers. And he's very sort of on the nose with his responses. But he does quite talk quite a little about the stunts um, around actors. And that, it, there's one I read there the interviewer asked him about Roger not doing I think it was Roger it might not be he's basically talking about Bond doing their own stunts and he was like you, no director would ever put their cast at risk especially their main stars um, because if even they he was he was even worried about them like walking with slippy shoes on because if they twisted their ankle it's messed up his whole plan and he's got to put it back so as a director you're so careful with the, the the safety on the set and everything like that so if anyone ever says they do all of their own stunts it's not it's not it's, it's not like that and even nowadays he was talking about how actors will say they're doing their own stunts but really they're jumping into like a pool or something like that it's not 
it's not as hard as you think. It's not like the old days of stuntmen where they were really doing these things. So, so a couple of quotes to end with. He said, I know that I've made some bad pictures, but when I was making a film, I knew I had to do the best I could do with the material that I was working with. Sometimes I wished I had a more correct, uh, cooperative or better writer, but that's the same for everybody. And another one, just an ending line from him, uh, which I thought was quite nice. I never let the audience dictate what picture I should make. If you've got a story you want to make, make it the way you think it should be. Don't let the audience tell you how to make a picture. You should take the audience into consideration all of the time you're working for them. And then Hamilton died at the age of 93 in 2016. So big, big legacy, mainly because he did Goldfinger for me. So he's probably the most important director on my list. Yeah, I mean, Goldfinger, you compare it to the other three he did. It's, it's, it just goes to show you, you need every ingredient in that Bond cake to make it work. Yes. Interesting that also that was the one that had the most um, harmonious behind the scenes story as well. So it kind of yes. just shows that everything needs to be working in, in, in good order behind the scenes to get the best yeah, out of Bond. I, I also think there's a big part in that where Goldfinger, he'd come in at a point where Goldfinger had followed Dr. No from Russia of Love. So the film had to follow the, the success of those two and couldn't go too far away from them. So he was almost giving, a, like, a, 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 imagine giving a little bit of leeway. It's like you need to up the action a little bit. You need to up the, you know, sexual innuendo a little bit, but not too much because it still has to be the same sort of film. But with every film that goes, you do that a little bit more and a little bit more until you get to the point where it just gets too much. So he just came in at the right point, I think, to you maybe at the right point in his career as well where he, he was learning about those things as well but yeah um you make yeah. uh making goldfinger sound like a technical challenge on bake-off he's got all the right ingredients but hasn't been given the the proper recipe um and he's just making it up <laughs> well it's yeah, f- that sounds about right. funny it's probably who i'm going to talk about later peter hunt has probably got something to do with it as well he's goldfinger's the only one he's involved with there um and he, he was, was going to say you're going to talk about paul hollywood um <laughs> <laughs> Well, we might as well. It is hate. We're never going to get an opportunity like this again. H is for Hamlish, Marvin Hamlish, the composer behind The Spy Who Loved Me. So he was born in June 1944. He's an American composer and conductor. Um, he, Like I said, he did the score for The Spy Who Loved Me and he also co-wrote its theme song, Nobody Does It Better, um, as sung by Carly Simon. He is one of only 16 people to have won an EGOT. Do you know what the EGOT is? It, no, the, no idea. It's the Grand Slam of um, of, of awards. It's, it's very prestigious. So it's if you win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar and a Toner, you're considered an EGOT winner. So mm. I'll put you guys on the spot. If um, Marvin Hamlish is an EGOT winner, can you name any other EGOT winners? It's a good quiz question. Oh, Maracone. Uh, no, good guess. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I would say think musicals I'll give you some John give Williams you some other ego. oh Barbara Streisand Barbara Streisand is a good guess uh, fortunately it's not right she thinks she's one off Liza Minnelli uh, Andrew Lloyd uh, no Andrew Lloyd James Corden <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber Tim Rice Alan Menken John Legend and Whoopi Goldberg and Mel Brooks, these are all EGOT winners, and Marvin Hamlish. Anyway, slight wow. detour there. Should have done that under E, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was born in Manhattan to Austrian parents, uh, and his father was an accordionist uh, and also a band leader, so that's where he gets his musical um, 
uh, tastes from. He was uh, a child prodigy and it was just a few months before he turned seven that he was accepted in uh, the Juilliard Juilliard School pre-college division. Uh, From there, he went on to study music at the Queen's College in uh, New York. But his career as a professional musician started when he was a student um, and by his uh, when he was a teenager, he had a job as the rehearsal pianist on a TV series called The Bell Telephone Hour, which was a series that showcased Broadway tunes. He then worked as an assistant vocal arranger uh, on the stage musical Funny Girl, starring Barbara Streisand, who you just mentioned, Um but his his breakthrough as a songwriter came in 1965 with the song Sunshine, Lollipops and Rainbows, which was co-written by Hamlish and produced by Quincy Jones. I'm, I'm sh- assuming you've heard of that one. Absolute classic. That, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Off the top. Can you can you remind I'm me? I'm not singing you, it. Can you sing no. it? No. But his first film score was for a film called The Swimmer. And that was uh, basically he got that gig after the producer of the film, Sam Spiegel, heard Hamlish doing a piano performance at a party. Um, and he just said, you've got great talent. Do you want to score a th- this film I'm working on? Which is quite amazing, really. He then also went on to write music for a number of early Woody Allen films. Um, something interesting in his career as well. He, he went from there basically to do lots of different um, film scores. But one thing he did do in 1972 was play piano for Groucho Marx when Groucho Marx was hosting an evening with Groucho at Carnegie Hall in 1972. So here we go. This is where we get come up to... Um, his involvement with James Bond. So in 1974, Marvin Hamlish became the second person to win three Oscars in the same evening. The only other person that had done that before was Billy Wilder in 1961. So he won three Oscars on the night because he had done the score for The Sting, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And I don't know if you know that film very well, but that score is is basically um, adaptations of a number of Scott Joplin tunes, including The Entertainer. So he won the Oscar for Best Original Score for that one. And The Entertainer, as you know, went on to be uh, a top 10 hit as well. On the same night, he then won two Oscars for the Sidney Pollack film, The Way We Were, which also starred Barbara Streisand. Um, And he won the the, the Oscar for the Best Original Dramatic Score and Best Original Song. So I didn't know that they had uh, differing sections for scores in that uh, time, but there you have it. So then, for The Spy Who Loved Me... John Barry was unavailable due to, can you guess why? Tax tax reasons. (laughs) Oh, yes. Second mention of tax today. Excellent. So Marvin Hamlish uh, basically got called up um, and he was only the second James Bond composer that wasn't John Barry or Monty Norman after George Martin had done Live and Let Die. So talking about doing James Bond, Marvin Hamlish said, there's something wonderfully blasé about James Bond. Like when he throws his hat, it always hits. He's a man who just knows what, that he's got it no matter what. He's so cool. He's so together that this will all just be fine. He doesn't have to come in blasting. He can just walk in and charm you to death. So he got the idea for the title song from his wife, who was also a, a lyricist. And she said, he said that he didn't want to write a song about the villain for uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. He wanted to write a song for Bond himself and he asked her what could be said about James Bond after all these years and she replied, nobody does it better. So he said that song was about James Bond. This song is his Bible. It was sung by Carly Simon and we'll talk about that song when we get to the episode on The Spy Who Loved Me later in the year. So his score is for The Spy Who Loved Me is quite different to what we've come to expect from Bond films by this point. It has like disco influences 
Uh, as we all know, we're all big fans of Bond 77. It also takes some cues from Lawrence of Arabia, you know, when they're, when they're in the desert. Yeah, it literally lifts cues from that film for there. And it also includes pieces of classical music from other composers as well. So stuff from Bach, stuff from Chopin, stuff from Mozart even. It's all in there in that score. It's quite, it's, it's quite interesting when you listen to it. So he was Oscar nominated for that score for Best Original Score, but he lost out to John Williams for Star Wars. And he also was nominated for Original Song, but missed out on winning that to You Light Up My Life from the film You Light Up My Life, which I've never heard of before. So Richard Maybaum wasn't a huge fan. As we know, Richard Maybaum was the writer on many of the Bond films. He said it was fine, but it wasn't anything like a John Barry score, which is fair. So Hamlish was nominated or has been nominated for an Oscar 12 times in total. Uh, later on in his career, he worked with Lewis Gilbert again on Shirley Valentine. And some other scores that he worked on include Ice Castles, which I don't know if you remember, but that stars Lynn Holly Johnson, <laughs> who later went on to play BB Oh, Dunn. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I remember researching that. <laughs> yeah. Ordinary People, starring Robert Redford. Sophie's Choice, starring Meryl Streep. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days which was quite surprising for me to find. And also a couple of Steven Soderbergh films, The Informant and Behind the Candelabra. So unfortunately, after a brief illness in uh, 2012, he collapsed and died at his home in Los Angeles at the age of 68. So no age at all, really. Um, but yeah, left quite an indelible mark on, on Bond with that film. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of Spy Love Me and I think the score is part of that. Mm. Bond 77 is, is excellent. I used, I used to listen to Bond 77 when I was snowboarding on headphones. <laughs> to replicate. That is one way to make yourself feel cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't have the outfit. I, I did look for the outfit, but it's quite hard to find one of those. So yeah, but at least I felt like Roger Moore. <laughs> so, H is for Haggis. Paul Haggis and Paul Haggis is a Canadian screenwriter, film producer and director and he's probably best known for Million Dollar Baby and Crash which won consecutive Academy Awards and that would be what off the back of that got him to the James Bond gig in 2006. So they had a script that they needed needed to be polished um, they wanted the characters between uh, the relationship between the characters to be strengthened, and they needed the final act to reach a conclusion. He says, "We're we're trying to do for Bond what Batman Begins did for Batman." In the original draft, the character confessed and killed herself, and then she sent Bond to chase after the villains, and Bond chased the villains into the house. And I don't know why, but I thought that Vesper had to be in the sinking house, and Bond has to want to kill her and then tried to save her, and she has to kill herself. And so that's what he added to Neil Purvis and Robert Wade's script. The script was nominated for a BAFTA Award for the Best Adapted Screenplay, and Barbara Broccoli said, we had a great script to begin with, and he just made it better. So she was really happy that, that she'd managed to sign him, sign him on to, to come and finish the, the screenplay. So then off the back of that success, he'd, he'd done a good job. He went into starting to prepare work for Quantum of Solace. So again, Purvis and Wade, they completed their draft of the script. Um, that was done by April 2007. And then Paul Haggis, 
he was brought in to do the same the following month. And this is where the problem comes, which we've spoke about on, on numerous occasions. The Writers' Strike, the Writers' Guild of America strike, um, meant that he did a draft, handed it in, and then two hours, the strike began. So just two hours after he'd handed it in. And um, it was the proposed title for it was Sleep of the Dead. So he wasn't actually a fan of the title they ended up going with. But a few changes were made. It was. It seems to have been, from what we've learned, it was completely rewritten by Mark Forster and Daniel Craig at, at times. So he wanted the the final climax of the film to be in the Swiss Alps, and he also wanted their uh, Vespa Lynn to have a child. Um, but the producers turned that down and said Bond was an orphan. Once he finds the kid, Bond can't just leave the kid. Um, uh, I think that's something that um, we've we've seen in the most recent film. We see see that sort of coming coming from well, Bond. The, the Bond ideas never get thrown away; no, they're no. always floating mm. around somewhere. Yeah, and he says, "I think my draft was actually better than Casino Royale, but for whatever reason, they decided, you know, the writer strike hit, and the director decided to rewrite it and took it to places he felt more comfortable with." It's still a good movie. It's not mine like Casino Royale is mine. So who knows what what could have happened had that strike not gone ahead. It would have been a completely different film by the sound of it. As we've we've spoke about Mark Forster and uh, what he brought to the table. He, mm. he put a lot of himself into that script and well, into there's, Bond. There's many Bond films that I would happily say, like Gold Goldfinger, if there was a, another version of Goldfinger... I'm not that bothered about seeing it. Quantum of Solace, yeah. delete it. Do the other one. More than happy to more than happy to take that risk. It's easy for him to say though with Quantum of Solace, oh, that's not the film mm. that I wrote. Of course. Uh, because yeah. it turned out badly. I'm sure if it came out really well, he'd be like, Oh yeah, that's my film. Yeah, um, that's the one I did. Yeah. Lovely stuff. <laughs> so it's um yeah, it's easy to disown ones that don't work, um, than to claim responsibility for ones uh that don't, yeah. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, H is for Harwood, Joanna Harwood. Now, Joanna Harwood is somebody we've talked about at length in this podcast. We talked about her quite a bit during the Doctor No episode, I believe, and then we followed that up with an actual full episode just about her. We did an interview episode, so if you want to really delve into Joanna Harwood and then head back to some of those earlier episodes and you'll find out a lot about um, uh, her role within the, the Bond franchise. So I'll just do a bit of an overview here for people who are new to it. Um, so Joanna Harwood was uh, a, an Irish screenwriter. For, uh, she was born in 1930 um, and she's famous in the Bond um, series for co-writing two of the Bond films, which she was credited for, Dr. No and For Should Love. But also she has uncredited work for Goldfinger as well. So pretty important person in the in the Bond history. A bit about her early life. She um, joined the film industry in 1949. Brendan, I'm going to need a bit of help on this one because uh, it's a lot of French here. So she trained at the Institut de Hautes Etudes Cinematographiques. That sound right to you? No, but it's fine. It's also known as the IDHEC. Go, go with so, that. Uh, go with that. Go with that, yeah, okay. 
uh, that was in Paris. According to uh, the the Irish Digest, um, she also studied filmmaking in England, um, but returned to Dublin to work in the Irish film industry. She was a continuity supervisor on a number of films in the 1950s. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I've never heard of them. Uh, but some of them starred Orson Welles, so they were probably all right at the time. She did assistant continuity on um, for Albert R. Broccoli Productions, The Red Beret and Hell Below Zero. And she claims that she moved to London because of the shortage of Irish film work um, at the time. Uh, and so she moved to London to, to work for a talent agent. Now, this talent agent that she was working for, at some point, uh, the agency uh, was taken over by Harry Saltzman. So you can see she started to get involved with not one, but two of the big names in the Bond story. So she stayed on as his secretary and she became a reader for him. And eventually she persuaded him to let her write a, a, a script for uh, a film. And so she, he spoke to her one night about a Bob Hope film and um, wanted her to develop an outline for it. Uh, so she wrote a spoof for a 1959 James Bond short called Some Are Born Great. It was a short story in a magazine, I think. Yeah, Fleming, Ian Fleming liked it, and uh, I think he sent her a letter to say like how much he'd enjoyed it, I think. It's, do you remember, it was the one where it's a spoof of Bo- James Bond, and he's playing cards, and then it turns out they're playing Snap, and he's drinking milk, not a vodka martini. It's, um, oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So she started working on actual writing for, uh, for, for Saltzman, and she adapted a play called The Marriage Game, which was like a comedy, which was then, it, it was a play that went on at the King's Theatre in South Sea. Uh, she wrote two unfilmed screenplays for Saltzman's uh, Woodfall Film Productions, City of Spades and Articles of War. Um, and then after that, she started to actually get involved in the Bond series. So Saltzman got her to work on the first two Bond films, Doctor Noob and From Rush With Love. And she also worked on Call Me Buana, a film that we occasionally reference in this but if you want to find out more there's quite a bit in an earlier episode for dr no um they'd originally hired richard maybaum um and uh, wolf mankowitz to write the screenplay um but one of the initial scripts was rejected because they we've talked about this at depth as well about the doc the monkey dr no possibly being a monkey uh and around that time mankowitz left the movie um and then Maybaum st- uh, started working on another version, uh, which is more in line with the novel. Uh, Mankiewicz removed his name from the credits after he saw some early rushes because he didn't want his name associated with it. Uh, and Harwood, along with Berkeley Mather, worked on Maybaum's script. Terence Young described Harwood as a script doctor, somebody who helped out with a few elements and sort of tidied it up. And also Maybaum said that he was a bit put out that she got uh, an adaptation credit for From Russia With Love, um, which he thought that she didn't deserve. So Harwood, um, she in an interview that she did, she said that she worked, she was a screenwriter on several Saltzman projects, uh, including Doctor No and From Russia With Love. Um, so yeah, she clearly played a big part in those ones as well. She also had uncredited contributions to The Ipocris File, obviously another Saltzman project. And she really wanted to direct as well, according to an interview that she did with the Irish Digest in 1966. 
So aside from that, she did did a few bits as well. She um, did a lot of foreign translations. Uh, so she translated three novels from um, a French author called Nicole Vidal into English. She wrote, uh, she worked for the Reader's Digest in Paris, condensing French novels. And um, she co-wrote the French film Ne jouer pas avec les Martiens. That's probably completely wrong, but it sounded all right, Sounds didn't it? All right, so I'll take huh? that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, your your French girlfriend's probably just listening outside the door, just shaking her head. Who is this idiot? And yes, yeah, she also, she was married to French film director René Clement. She's a lesser known person in the Bond history, especially in sort of past years. I, I imagine about 15 years ago, you would never have heard her name brought up when it came to talking about Bond. But in recent years, rightly so, her name has been brought up more and more, especially in um, the, in the last couple of years around No Time to Die. So if you actually search for um, her name in Google, you, you she pops up quite a bit, uh, especially when it comes down to, uh, you, I, I think actually a picture of Phoebe Waller-Bridge crops up because I assume that she's talked about her in articles um, because, I mean, she's, you know, one of the first writers of Bond. She shaped the stories, the, the, the first three films, and which many, including probably most of us on, on this call, would say are the best Bond films, and, and she's been there to shape them. So um, she's definitely sort of seen a, 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 an increased level of notoriety and, and respect for the work that she did in, in those series. Um, so, yeah, there we go, Joanna Harwood. And as I say, if you want a lot more about Joanna Harwood, then shoot back to our interview episode to find out. And, and again... Yeah, ju- would have been interesting to see her, you know, move forward with Bond as we've we spoke about before. I I just it just would be amazing to actually know, like go back in time and see how much because it's so sort of, mm. you know, foggy with the history um, of of how it all went down. But I I just love to know how much you know what the what her input was in those and the, the effect that she had. So did you know as well, this is, we were recording this in advance, but they just announced the name of the new James Bond book by Kim Sherwood. Have you heard this? Yeah. It's called Double or Nothing. And one of the double uh, O agents in the book is called Joanna Harwood. There we go. So it's the first female author of a Bond book. And yeah, she's paying tribute to Joanna Harwood, the first female scripted screenwriter. Lovely nod. Yeah. Lovely nod. Well deserved. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. H is for Higgins, Mark Higgins. Mark Higgins is a stunt driver. So he was born in uh, uh, May 1971. Uh, He's actually a rally driver as well. Um, But he's been a stunt driver on the James Bond films Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre and No Time to Die. He's also a three-time British rally champion. But some of the other films that he's worked on uh, in the film industry, he's one of the most in-demand stunt drivers there is, uh, include The Batman, that's the new one, The Mummy, Kingsman, The Golden Circle, Fast and Furious 6, one for you, Brendan. Solo. His eyes are lighting up now. Now he's into it. Solo, A Star Wars Story, Avengers Age of Ultron, and he's also uh, worked on Top Gear and the Grand Tour as well. So, um, yeah, very much in-demand driver. So... Mark Higgins joined the James Bond film for Quantum of Solace and he was invited to join uh, by Ben Collins, who we've covered on this podcast before. Ben Collins had also been worked on Top Gear and had gone on to become a driver on the Bond films. So Ben Collins was doubling for Daniel Craig in the opening scene of Quantum of Solace. You both remember it, right? It's that really like brutal chase sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just instant car chase yeah yeah the film starts so talking about joining quantum of solace higgins 
uh, in an interview with uh, the website Bond Locations said, Ben mentioned it to me very loosely one evening. Would you like to be in a James Bond film? Can you imagine the response? I've never worked on a film before, so it was my first ever film. I've never heard, never, ever heard anything more until three or four months later when I got a phone call. And it was Ben and he said, are you free for the next three months to go to Italy? And that was my first trip ever to work on a film. So in that film, he drove an Alfa Romeo um, in the pre-title sequence. And as we know, that that scene was massively cut down as well. I can't remember why we were talking about it. Maybe it was when we talked about Ben Collins, but it was supposed to be a much longer chase sequence, but actually got cut right back. I think we were talking about the editing in that film. Yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, it must have been. Yeah, it was. we were talking about the editor of the film, weren't we? Um, so, yeah. And I think Mark Higgins stuff really got cut out. And I think he was quite disappointed to to see like how much of, I think he, even one of the, like an entire car gets cut out of that chase sequence, an entire Alfa Romeo. So anyway, he did return then to drive the Land Rover in the pre-title sequence uh, in Skyfall. So that is the one that's driven by Moneypenny. And he tells an interesting story about how when he was filming that, he had had, had to have an operation on his throat and he couldn't talk for weeks. He said, I remember that on the very first day I met Daniel Craig on set, he was alongside me as Moneypenny. So he was in a passenger. He was in the passenger seat. I couldn't speak to him. So I had to write him a note. I think the note said something like, don't worry, I won't be doing the bedroom scene. Because as you can imagine, this guy was dressed as Moneypenny as well. So he had like the wig on and yeah. I'd love to see a picture of that. Yeah, there is actually a picture online. Uh, it's quite funny. He also did some of the driving with M uh, in the Jaguar in Skyfall and also a bit of the DB5 driving to Scotland. And he makes it sound like basically with the stunt drivers on set, they're all just there and they're all just chipping in to do different things. Obviously, they'll get assigned to certain sequences and what have you. But when you're a driver on Bond, you're just driving whatever needs to be driven on the day. So then Inspector, he drove the DB10 in Rome. He said, we really enjoyed that. The cars were fantastic. I don't think that many people had an opportunity to slide through the Vatican at 90 miles an hour. Um, and then he was also went on to be involved in No Time to Die, uh, driving the DB5 in the Matera scene yeah, and also some of the stuff in Norway. And he talks a bit about in the interviews how in Matera to get grips on the on the cobbles, they had to pour Coca-Cola on the road so it would get sticky and make the cars grip to the cobbles. But yeah, so talking... How much Coca-Cola? Sorry? That's ridiculous. Yeah, gallons and gallons and gallons of the stuff. Um, So talking about Daniel Craig, Mark Higgins said, he's great. He was really chilled on this one. It was my fourth film with him and he's been great to work with. I'm really sad to see him go, to be honest. In my eyes, he's probably the best Bond. And yeah, he enjoys driving when he can and when he's not doing his other stuff. He's a fantastic actor. So thankfully, he lets me do the driving and I let him do the acting. So we've got a bit of a deal. And then just another quote to end with. This is him talking about his love of the Bond films. He says, I think everybody wants to be in a Bond film. Of all the film, it's got the kudos. It's got the history. It's very iconic. And wherever you go around the world, everybody's heard of a Bond film. I think when I watched my first Bond film with my dad, it was probably Moonraker or something. And when I was a kid, to ever think I'd be in a movie, let alone actually driving the Bond cars, you have to pinch yourself. And it's great to be involved in such a thing. So there you go. That is Mark Higgins. You'd recognise me if you saw him as well. He does a lot of uh, sort of TV stuff around driving. So uh, yeah, bit of a legend there. Was he ever the Stig? Well, no, not officially. I think Ben Collins is the only Stig that's ever been officially ma- unmasked and, and, and revealed himself to be one. So can't stand the Stig. <laughs> can't stand him. Legend, mate. Legend. Mm. 
H is for Peter R. Hunt. Peter Roger Hunt was born in March 1925 and he was a British director, editor and producer of film and TV. Um, And he is probably best known for his work on the Bond series, which was initially as an editor and then he moved on to director. So he was born in London and he learned his craft from his uncle who made government training and educational films. And from a young age, he was, appeared on a recruiting poster for the Boy Scouts when he was 16. Then at 17, he joins the army, where he is then shipped off to Italy, um, and he is part of the Battle of Cassino. After the war, he then goes back, and he returns to work with his uncle, learning more about the trade. Um, and after that, he works as assistant cutter for Alexander Corder, who I think you mentioned earlier, didn't you, Wheatley? Oh, yes. Guy Hamilton, yeah. So uh, he then goes on to work f- as an assembling editor for the man in, in The Man Who Watched Trains Go By. Did a few more movies and then work, starts working his way up, uh, usually as a supervising editor. And then he ed- edits the Admiral Crichton, which is directed and co-written by Lewis Gilbert. And on that, he becomes very good friends with John Glenn. So plenty of Bond alumni going on here. He continues that collaboration with Lewis Gilbert and they go uh, go on to films Ferry to Hong Kong and Sink the Bismarck. And then in the 60s, finally, he is signed on to become the editor on the first James Bond film, Dr. No. He said, I was a top English film editor in those days. Harry Saltzman, who came across to England and the first film he made was Look Back in Anger, which starred Richard Burton had been connected to theatre and various things during the early 50s. The war was over and I was editing, and Harry always wanted to use me. When he'd, made a fi- when he'd made a film, he'd call me and say, come on, let's make a film together, and each time I was either in the middle of film or I was about to do another film. So I'd never been able to do it. But we kept on good terms, and it was Harry who got hold of me when he was doing Dr No. It happened that I wasn't doing anything else at the time. I've known Terence since I was a boy. I'd been assistant on several films with him. And I'd always liked him. So all of that sort of slotted into place. And I found myself editing Doctor No. So he'd actually uh, edit, just edited a film called On the Fiddle in 1961. Where Sean Connery had played a peddler. And he had suggested to Harry Saltzman they take a look at Sean Connery. So in terms of Bond, editing for Bond, he sort of comes up with a new style he he wanted to make make things make it make a bond film seem more exciting he said if we kept the thing moving far, fast enough people won't see the plot holes what editors call chets or cheated editing editing tricks on doctor no for example there was a great deal missing from the film when we got back from shooting in jamaica and I had to cut it and revoice it in such a way for it to make sense so then he goes on to edit the second film from russia we love and uh, he's getting more confident this time, but he said the confidence came came back. It helped by one of the definitive fights of all time on the train. The carriage was built on the set, and we had three cameras filming the scene, which was great. The scene took a lot of manipulating in the cutting. So that scene in 115 seconds on the train is 59 cuts. So that use of jump cuts and quick cutting which was not sort of done at the time. It was all dissolves, fade-outs, and quite slow. 
he saw that as destroying that tension in that scene. So that's that's why he made that move along quickly. So then he goes on to edit Goldfinger. And he said, I got a little angry with Goldfinger because I didn't think it was being made properly. In fact, I did quite a lot of work on it insofar as second unit shooting. I just didn't feel like it was coming together in the way it should have been coming out. We changed the theme a bit. There was a different director. I just felt it wasn't quite right. The whole car chase was actually a good lesson in editing. It was cut and edited and made to be entirely different from the way it was shot. It was very interesting, but you wouldn't know, of course. Again, one of my favourite sayings is, thank goodness the audience hasn't seen the script. So it's, it seems, it's, it's funny to think that what we arguably think is the best Bond film. This isn't the first time I've heard somebody who worked on it saying it wasn't ideal until it all came together at the end. So he also worked on Call Me Buana, which we've talked about many, many times. And we really all need to sit and watch that We film. do. <laughs> the map, we talk about it. Yeah. Um, and also on the Ipcris file in 1965. So then he works on the next Bond film, Thunderball in 1965. He said, I like the film, particularly the underwater material, because it was a great challenge to me as an editor. And I was out in the Bahamas with them. And a great deal of responsibility was laid on my shoulders by them in making the, the film and in the finishing of it. So by this time, he's actually asked to direct You Only Live Twice. But unfortunately, they overlook him and they go with Lewis Gilbert. And so Hunt actually quits on this one. He says he doesn't want to edit it because they've overlooked him for this. He wants to move on up and on to direct. No, he's not interested but Broccoli and Saltzman, they persuade him to stay. He can be uh, and stay on as second unit director. Um, but on the proviso that he would be promoted to director uh, in, a, in a future Eon film. And he said, because I spent six months in Japan and did all the second unit on it, all the aerial stuff, the helicopter flight, all of it, which was great to make and get done. And it was tremendous training ground for me when I come on for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. But he says, I had a terrible time in the cutting room for You Only Live Twice with Donald Pleasance as Blofeld. Lewis Gilbert made him into a camp mini sort of villain. If you look at the film very carefully, Pleasance doesn't walk anywhere because he, because he had a mincing stride. He was so short that he looked like a little elf beside Connery. I used every bit of editing imagination I could so that he could be taken seriously as a villain. And he, and he pulled it off because, yeah, you, it's right. He just sits there, doesn't he? You don't see him move. Well, he just about pulled it off. <laughs> It's funny that, isn't it? So Lewis Gilbert then, he doesn't want to direct on a Majesty's Secret Service in 1969. So this is a great chance for Peter Hunt to take the director's job finally. And he says, during the entire shooting schedule, I had a copy of the paperback of the book where I had written various notes and things. I was very insistent that we stay with the story of the book. But he does say, I would have loved to have had have Connery because if we have had him, it would have been the best of the lot. I wanted it to be different to any other Bond film. It was my film, not anyone else's. And so, unfortunately, that was the last James Bond film which Hunt worked on. But they did, they did ask him to direct other Bond films, Live and Let Die, Spy Who Loved Me and For Your Eyes Only, but he always said no. He said, so each time he came to me, I couldn't do it for one reason or another, although I, I would have liked to. Therefore, the cycle broke, as it were. I did have heavy involvement in six of them, which must mean I brought something to the films. If Lazenby had have done Diamonds, then I may have done it, as well as the next two, and I wouldn't have done anything else. 
So then in 1975, he settled in Southern California with his partner, Nikos Cortis. Um, and then his career sort of tails off, really. He did a couple of ad- adventures with Roger Moore, Gold and Shout at the Devil. A couple with Charles Bronson, uh, Death Hunt and Assassination. And he also did Wild Geese 2 in 1985. Although in 1983... He was approached by Kevin McClory, ring the klaxon again. Um, ah, <laughs> is that a klaxon? <laughs> sound like a, a very angry little man. <laughs> um, but he said, I would have offended Cubby if I'd have done it. That whole situation was very poor in their thinking. And I think if I'd, I'd have done it, they would have thought that I was a traitor. We had talks about it, but I wouldn't have taken it for that reason. And so he died aged 77 in August 2002. But I think he's, he's got a massive part to play in that, that getting Bond up and going. But many people on His Majesty's Secret Service is the, the top spot. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love Peter Hunt. I'm going to just put it out there. He mm. is such a great character involved with the Bond films. And I love his contributions to the commentaries and the behind the scenes dvd extras i just mm-hmm. i love everything about him he's such a terrific character yeah um such a funny guy and uh, yeah like just some of the stuff when, when he mentions it and it points it out in the commentaries like for example there's a scene in, in goldfinger where goldfinger's literally just coming through a door and he's like well you see here i cheated a little bit because you see he's not going through the door he's about to go through the door but when the next cut he's coming through the other side of the door and it's stuff like that where when he shines a light on the stuff that he does, you just realise how much of a hidden presence the editor is in the films. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's, yeah, he's terrific. And I think um, it is I think it is a, a big loss when they go into the 70s and they lose him from that point on. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, imagine if he had done more. You just got to think what could have been. Yeah. I'd have loved to Peter Hunt Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if they'd... Um, there's a lot of things that could have been fixed with that film, but um, yeah. Right, that was excellent. Two brilliant directors there that we've mm. covered in this episode. Yeah. Shall we have a look at... First of all, let's just look at some of the other people under the letter H that we could have mentioned, um, but we're saving for the film episode uh, specials. So first of all, um, apologies to Lindy Hemming, H is for Lindy Hemming. She's a costume designer who worked from uh, on the James Bond films from GoldenEye to Casino Royale. She uh, obviously is responsible for a lot of uh, iconic costumes in that era, including, you know, Xenia on a top, Jinx and Christmas Jones, obviously. Um, but she was also integral in getting Brioni into the Bond films. So, yeah, we'll cover her in a bit more detail in, in some other films later down the line. Uh, Huit von Huitema, who was the cinematographer on Spectre. What, what do you remember most about the cinematography of Spectre? <laughs> How yellow it nice. is. <laughs> nice big building. <laughs> what? What? When they're inside the when they're inside the the Spectre building. <laughs> yes. Nice bit of cinematography there, good lighting. That is very beautiful lighting, yeah. Something interesting to say about Hoytman Hoytema is that he shot um Spectre on film after Skyfall was the first Bond film to be shot on digital. So uh, that's something to be uh, grateful for, I guess. Someone else to mention is John Hopkins. He was a credited co-writer on Thunderball. He um, is a acclaimed playwright. 
and sadly he died in 1998 after slipping and hitting his head drowning in a pool so uh, quite a sad story mm. for that but um, we'll cover that some more detail when we get to Thunderball and then Alan Hume who is a cinematographer again and Hume's first time working with 007 would work come in as the DOP on second unit of the spy who loved me so um mm-hmm. That was his work on the pre-title ski jump sequence as well. He was the DOP, the the the, the, the cinematographer on Fiori's Only, um, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill, and he also was cinematographer on Return of the Jedi. Mm. And he really, died in two thousand and ten. Really, really beige Bond films. <laughs> yes, he was a man who liked beige. Yes, um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Right, let's dive into the characters under the letter H. Uh, I'll kick things off. Melina Havelock, played by Carol Bouquet in from your for your eyes only. What do you think of her? Wooden. Oh, <laughs> I was, you're taking the words right out of my mouth. Most wooden Bond girl. That's harsh. I mean, we did a whole episode on for your eyes only. And I don't think any of us were big fans of uh, Melina Havelock, were no. we? No. No. But I just don't think she looks like a Bond girl either. There's something she's more like um. More like a, a catwalk model than perhaps a Bond girl. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I, I just think she's she's sort of she has no chemistry not only with Roger but with anyone else in the film. She doesn't seem to. And I know the whole point of that story is that she's undergone a very difficult scenario in her life because of her parents getting killed by who was who was it kills them? Christastos. But she's just not in fun to watch in any way. And Roger has barely no chemistry with her whatsoever throughout that film. No, he's, he's got not... It's probably he not her fault. It's probably not Car- Carol Bouquet's fault, but... It's, I mean, yeah, yeah, it could, really could be the role. script's fault, you know. Yeah. But either well, she, way, it's uh, not good. The other problem is that she's in it all the way. Like you, <laughs> she, you, you, but you could probably get... A lot of Bond women don't... They're not in the whole film. So she might have got away with it if she was only in like the last, the, you know, the third act. But she's there throughout the whole thing and it just doesn't have a very interesting presence throughout the whole film. So she'd have been blown up on the boat. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's actually a very successful screen actor in Europe. Uh, Carol Bouquet hasn't done many um, Western films after that. But I also read that she was the face of Chanel number no. five. So something else. That's, that sounds about right. She's got a very good face for... Uh, yeah, that stuff. Right, next character. Who wants to? <laughs> I don't know anything about Chanel Number Five. <laughs> Who wants to introduce the next character? I'll do this one because I like this one. Yeah. Um, T he, <laughs> obviously under he. So Mr. T he, who is uh, played by Ju- Julius Harris. He is the character in Live and Let Die who has a prosthetic arm. Um, he's. He's called Teehee because he laughs a lot, I believe. That's the that's the thinking behind it. I think he's, you know, quite a good character. That film is ridiculous and he's he's almost one of the things that make it ridiculous because of his, his role in it. Um, he's a bit of a pantomime character, really, but most of that film is a pantomime, so um, he fits in quite nicely. Yeah, he's one of those henchmen-type characters who's like a pale imitation of what's come before I think mm-hmm. uh, odd job um, and um, Red Grant uh, being like you know the classics of that um, of that ilk and obviously Jaws uh, was was to come. 
I, well, I think I think Live and Let Die suffers from, and we'll get on to Live and Let Die very soon. But I think Live and Let Die suffers from the fact that it's got too many ridiculous henchmen. You you only want one ridiculous henchman, but you've obviously got Baron Samady, you've got um, Whisper. Yeah. So you've got these. They only need one of these people. You don't need all of them. Um, so it just it, it's just a bit of a pantomime mess, I think. But he's all right. He's isn't he? He's at the end of the film as well, isn't he? He's, he's sort of the ending. Oh, there's two baddies at the end, isn't there? Baron Sambly pops up as well. Yeah. Well, Tihi is on the train and I, I watched this scene um, just to, to sort of remind myself before recording. But having watched and studied uh, From Russia With Love and the train fight on that and then watched this train fight, it is so crap compared to the <laughs> one from, yeah. from Russia With Love. Well, he's not an imposing villain, is he? At no point do you think that Roger Moore couldn't fight this man. He doesn't seem particularly imposing. No, and the robot arm just—it's look never—it's never even as a child when I watch this film, it never looks real. You can yeah. see that his hand yeah. is inside. Yeah, um, useless. Yeah. Just get a gun. It's better. It's better. Yeah. And then, yeah, and the way that he gets clipped to the window, and then Roger just tips him out of the train as well. <laughs> yeah, it's just pantomime stuff, isn't it? But um, Ju- yeah. Julius Harris—he was a very successful actor as well, um, known for black exploitation films. He died. In 2004. So um, I think one of the last things he was in was in ER. You want to intro the next one, Brendan? Mr. Hinks. This, this is why I picked Yeah, I can see. Because it's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Hinks, played by Dave Batista, who, you know, is uh, works for Spectre. He's a Spectre henchman. What's his... What, Necessary what's his, what's large his, um, man. What's his, is that, that it, isn't it? What's his... Like, He's, He's just... He's a big guy, and he also likes to poke people's eyes out with his That's metal it, thumbs. With his thumbs, yeah, yeah, and he and he can drive. He can drive well. Oh, he's good at driving. Yeah, yeah. he's got a terrific he's jaguar, rubbish. hasn't he? In the in the Rome scene, but um, yeah, it's just it's just like if you in the earlier Bond in the in the Bond films that use villains well, if you've got a really big guy, there's a reason why they're a big guy. Like they're either like Odd Job is, you know, he's a dangerous wrestler sort of guy Hinks it's just like why is he why have you got a big guy doing that job there's no reason for such a big guy doing that job and there's no reference to why he's such a big guy mm. he's essentially a wrestler it's like a Fast and the Furious decision well he well, he is a wrestler is he in Fast and the Furious <laughs> I don't think he's in Fast and the Furious no he doesn't he looks down on films like that doesn't he he's very much a um, he's very much the thinking man's thespian. wrestler turned yeah, out yeah what was it he did on Netflix um, <laughs> the zombie one Army of the Dead but very picky. Yeah. But he does, um, he obviously did Blade Runner 2049. He's in the... Dune. He's in June. Yeah, he's in the new Knives Out with Daniel Craig. Quite the... He's quite, Guardi- oh, yeah, he's Guardians of the Galaxy. He's quite the Laurence Olivier. He really yeah, is. He's very, very picky about his but, films. But actually, no, if you read interviews with Dave Batista, he's quite sniffy about... Um, I think he was asked, actually, whether he would do a movie with Dwayne Johnson and John Cena... And he said he wouldn't. He wouldn't demean himself um, <laughs> by doing a movie with them because he sees himself as a, a proper proper actor. Does, but does it want to make any quite... money then? No, <laughs> that would be. That... I'm fairly certain that at some point in the next two years he'll be doing a Netflix show with of both of those he will. people. It will be a meta show, <laughs> won't it? It'll be really meta, winking at the screen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, anyway, that's Dave Batista as Mr. Hinks. Um, and we'll talk about them again uh, when we get to S for Spectre. Having said that, um, if, he, if he does listen by some chance, I, 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 we're just joking. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, Sir Hinks. Please don't beat me up. 
<laughs> Love that Netflix film. <laughs> All right. And then just to wrap things up on this letter H uh, slash I, the one entry under the letter I, it's Polar Ivanova, as played by Fiona Fullerton in A View to a Kill. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Great role. Save the best till last. Yeah. She. What's the famous line? The bubbles. They tickle my Tchaikovsky. There we go. Although she's that 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 she's almost got a useless role in that film, but that that scene goes down in history. Like everyone remembers that scene because it's so ridiculous. And I remember it, it for Alan Partridge because he goes, oh, "I want to watch Roger Moore necking with Fiona Fullerton." yeah quite interesting um fiona fullerton i don't really know much about her but i was looking it up and she was uh, she's now a property investor but did you know that she was on strictly come dancing uh, a few years ago as well no american one or the uk no the uk one one in is there an american one i'm assuming there is yeah it's called dancing with the stars in america all right oh i that's interesting. But one interesting thing I did find out about Fiona Fullerton is that she did the uh, It's a Royal Knockout. Do you know about this? No. <laughs> so it was called the Grand Knockout Tournament. And it was it was in the news recently because Meatloaf took part in it. And Meatloaf said he, wanted, he, he threatened to push Prince Andrew into a moat while he was making it. Anyway, it, It's a Royal Knockout was like, it's a knockout, but with the royal family in it. Um so Prince Andrew had what, a team. When was this? In 1987, Prince Andrew oh, had a that team. Sounds about right. Yeah. Prince Edward had a team, um, and then I think Fergie had a team, and then someone else. So had four teams with loads of celebrities on each team. Here are some of the Bond alumni that took part. You ready? Fiona Fullerton, George Lazenby, of course, John Cleese, Jackie Stewart, who you remember appeared very briefly in Casino Royale 67, yeah. Sheena Easton. Right. And Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour? She was doing quite well at that time. You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? But actually, yeah. it was quite a lot of quite famous people. I think Kevin Klein did it and Meatloaf. Um, what is going on? <laughs> well, I mean, it's the first... It's not going to be the last time we talk about it. It's a royal knockout. Come on, let's be honest. Um, I'm up for discussing this in depth over a course of about five episodes. <laughs> I'd love to get an interview with the PR manager who came up with that idea. I think it was Prince Edward himself that came up with the idea, actually. Okay, well, I look, so I look forward yeah. to the modern version. Netflix will snap that up and Batista will be straight on it, won't he? Oh. It'd be good. Yeah. Which of the royal family yeah. would take part, though? That's the thing. Well, it'd be Prince Harry. Harry would be involved, Harry would he? be in there, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah. I'd be bang up for it. be bang up for it. So... That about wraps up our episode on the letter H and I. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, if people want to uh, email the show with any additions or, or corrections or comments, how do they get hold of us? Yeah. Um, and if you are listening, David Bautista, um, <laughs> David, we'll give you a sticker. <laughs> David, <laughs> oh, we've got to be, got to be nice. So uh, yeah, if you are if you are going to email, then uh, sorry, uh, that's. Uh, Podcast at jamesworldazz.co.uk And if they want to get us on social media? On Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at jamesbondazz. You, you, you can slide into our DMs, Dave. No. Why are you asking him to slide into your DMs? Why not? I'm scared. <laughs> I panicked. He's not going to be sliding in a nice way. He'll be body slamming sliding <laughs> in. <laughs> Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave us a good rating on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. 
Um, if you didn't, still just leave us a good review because it helps um, for people to find the show. Uh, if you like these, we've done episodes on lots of different James Bond films, including recent ones on Goldeneye and Goldfinger. And later in the year, we'll have episodes on George Lazenby, License to Kill, Live and Let Die, Felix Leiter, all sorts of exciting stuff coming up later this year. So uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been the James Bond Aid Said podcast, which the James Bond Aid Said podcast will return next week. Thanks. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.